0: Hello and welcome to Fatal Films, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez, stay tuned.
1: a quick note before we get started, we are only able to do this podcast because of the support of you, our listeners. We'd like to thank each and every one of our Patreon donors that help keep this show going. Through Patreon, we are able to offer our supporters bonus content like many episodes and even the chance to program an episode with monthly donations that help us keep the lights on. If you're interested in joining our Patreon family, please click the link in the show notes. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and or comment on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. That helps us gain helpful insight about the show and boost our visibility. Thanks
0: for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello everybody, we have with us for this special Noir November episode somebody who's been on the show with us before, author Hallie Sutton. She is a writer and editor who lives in Los Angeles. She's also a Pitch Wars mentor and holds a bachelor's degree in creative writing from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a master's degree in writing from Otis College of Art and Design. Her debut novel, The Lady Upstairs, is coming out on November 17th. That's right. That is correct. Excellent. And I know I have pre-ordered my copy from a local bookstore, Book People here in Austin. I just have to curbside drive up and get it on that day. So I'm super excited.
2: Well, thank you so much, Laura. That's so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for pre-ordering my book. That is so special. Thank you.
0: No, I remember hearing you talk about this book on the Unlikable Female Characters podcast Mm -hmm. a while back I don't even know years a couple years probably yeah and thinking it sounded so cool and so then whenever there was a chance for me to actually get it I was like yes yes this is happening (laughs) wonderful thank you but anyway to give y'all a synopsis of the book it is a modern day noir featuring a cat and mouse chase oh this also says it's twisty (laughs) Uh, it's a dark debut thriller that tells the story of a woman who makes a living taking down terrible men yes then (laughs) finds herself in over her head with blood all over her hands the only way out to pull off one final con yes that sounds so good Thank you, thank you. Uh, well, in in keeping with
2: uh, the title of your podcast, it is very much about femme fatales and uh,
0: women running the show behind the scenes. I love it. I yeah, I'm very excited to read it, and it's going to be the second in. I don't know if she's a serial killer, but it does say that she takes down terrible men. So I'm currently reading Lane Fargo's book, They Never Learn. Oh, wonderful. So I'm like, yes, lots of ladies taking down bad guys. I like it.
2: Yes, definitely. Uh, I wouldn't call Joe a serial killer, my main character, uh, in the same way that Scarlet is very much a serial killer and they never learn. But definitely a lot of threads shared there in kind of twisty feminist revenge thrillers.
0: And was Lane your mentor in Pitch Wars? She was. I was lucky
2: enough to work with Lane as my mentor in Pitch Wars. And actually this year we are uh, mentoring together for the second year in a row. Last year we mentored um, a woman named Heather uh, Len Levy, whose book Walking Through Needles will be coming out from Polis Agora Press in 2021. I'm Don't remember the exact date, but definitely is one to watch for. And we just announced that we're going to be working on a like a 1920s flapper feminist noir with this very talented writer named Alessia. Oh goodness, I am going to butcher her last name, Liuzna. Alessia Liuzna. I'm sorry, Alessia, in advance for not getting your name correct. But very excited to work with her. But yes, I got to work with Lane as my um, pitch wars mentor, and she really, really helped me kind of whip the book into the shape that it needs to be to be
0: the version that is coming out uh, November 17th. So yeah, it makes sense that there may be a little bit of similarities in y'all style there. Yes. I guess for people who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about pitch wars? Sure. Pitch Wars is an online mentoring program that goes every year and uh, people volunteer
2: to be mentors. There's usually, I think like 110, 115 mentors from all over the world. And it's published writers, agents, editors, anyone who kind of has a professional writing background, they pick one person out of their slush pile to work with every year. So I think this year we had more than 4,000 applications. And when you apply To be in Pitch Wars, you get to pick up to four mentors that you might want to work with and you send them your query, like a short synopsis of your book in the first 10 pages. Yeah, just an online mentoring program. It goes usually like three to four months of revising before an agent showcase at the end, which kind of gives you a a boost in visibility. But it really is about the work that you get done in those three to four months. And firsthand, I have seen how much work you can do. It is uh, both a marathon and a sprint, which is horrifying, but it really 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 did transform my book and i've seen it transform other people's too
0: that's really cool i'm hoping that in the future i'll have something to submit and try out for maybe next year but um my my writing is very slow i'm doing <laughs> nanorama this year but oh wonderful um, falling behind on that as well. But I have done more work than I've ever done before. So I'm very proud of that. That's awesome.
2: I mean, honestly, I also feel like anybody writing anything in 2020, I'm super impressed by because this is a hard year to be creatively generative, I think.
0: I know I've had a hard time even reading books, just being able to focus on it. Mm -hmm. Same. I
2: keep going through stretches where there'll be a couple of weeks when I can really read and can really get into it. And then I like... I'll go two months and read one book or something and not even finish it. And it just, yeah, it's very different. Yeah, Um, and
0: it's nothing on the books or it's not that they're not interesting or anything. It's just, it's literally my mind mm -hmm. doesn't want to do it. (laughs) I think
2: I think we're going to come out of this uh, coronavirus pandemic whenever we do come out of it. And I think like all of our stamina will have been readjusted for everything, whether it's the focus for reading books or like I'm finding that, Social situations are more tiring, even though I need them more, you know, it just, I don't know, it's going to be a big recalibration.
0: Yes. What we all look like on the other side of this will be very interesting to see. When we have to wear pants again, you (laughs) know, for business meetings. Yeah, I'm wondering if dress codes are going to change too because unless you just really enjoy dressing up, right. I feel like everybody else is going to be like, "Why do we have to do this?" I think so too. I think you're right. I think it's we've we've
2: let this cat out of the bag and now it's going to be hard to put the sweatpants, you know, back <laughs> back away. Yeah. <laughs> so what what are if you don't mind sharing, what are what are you writing? What what kind of books do you write and what are you working on for NanoRimo?
0: So, I I'm working on a mystery book. It's more Kind of, it's not thriller as much. Uh, I love thrillers and I love to read them, but I find for myself it's hard to keep that momentum going for it. Totally. So th- this is a little bit more of a character driven a little bit slower type thing mm. and that <laughs> it's funny because i see the character's very clearly but the mystery part itself is what i'm still trying to work out a little bit more so right now i've got so i've got a body on the beach Ooh, sh- okay And then my main character's name is Mallory, and she's an American who's um, taking a couple months out in this little tiny town in England, um, and she's staying at the first and last inn because... It's so far. It's like one of the farthest points in England. So Mm -hmm. they say that it's the first place and the last place in the country. Oh, I like that. Is that based on a real place? Uh, Yes, it is a real place. It's in the Cornwall area. Mm -hmm. So I spent some time in Penzance, which is a little ways from there about five years ago. And I took a bus out there, but I didn't stay. I just saw it and I was like, this place is so cool. This would be great for something. And then when I started writing, I was like, ooh, I want to set it here. I love that. All those little details
2: you get to file away and that one day become useful.
0: Yes. And then it's been so much fun, too, to go back and like look at pictures to remind myself of, okay, what does this place look like? What's actually out there? Mm -hmm. Now I just really want to go there.
2: Well, that's kind of nice in the middle of this pandemic. You get to travel in your mind somewhere new. Yeah. Uh, I I hear you, though, on the having to put together a mystery. There is some, like, screaming toddler part of me that always finds it very unjust that not only do I have to come up with a central mystery, but then I have to solve it. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) I have to do both of these things?
0: Yeah, I'm working on a screenplay with my writing partner right now that's like a a gothic horror comedy and we were batting around some of the questions you ask yourself when you're formulating your story and your characters Mm -hmm. and stuff and we were like oh this is supposed to be mysterious but we have (laughs) to take the mystery out of it for us we have to find the answer right
2: right it is, it's hard to do both, to like sow the clues and kind of create this atmosphere of mystery and then at the same time be working towards a solution that you know, but not give that away to the reader, but you also don't want it to feel like a cheat at the end. It's a lot of balancing.
0: Yeah, and I don't know how your process works exactly, but I know some mystery writers have said that they like to start at the end and mm. like plot backwards. What do you do?
2: <laughs> um, that would have made this book a lot easier, I think, if I had understood my ending and plotted backwards instead of trying to fix the loose threads I was creating as I went. So my first book, The Lady Upstairs, definitely was kind of more of a, um, at least for the first draft or 2 more of a pantser where i was kind of trying to figure out where the characters were going to take me and what i actually was interested in saying with the book and then spent a lot of time in revision and with my editor and my agent kind of fixing a lot of the problems i had created for myself along the way by not figuring out exactly how i was solving the mystery in the first place i am hoping with my second book that i'm just kind of barely getting started working on right now i theoretically know how the mystery is going to be solved so i'm hoping that that makes it easier to thread those clues throughout and not have a bunch of hanging chads at the end, if you will, that you have to figure out what you're going to do with them.
0: I can imagine that having the experience of the first will really help with the writing of the second book, because you know some of those things to like, okay, this was really difficult, so let me do this a different way now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm hoping so. So far, it doesn't seem super easy, but I'm sure hoping so. I don't think writing is ever easy. uh, True. And it, it just astounds me some of these authors, like Nora Roberts, she's written, I don't even know how many books under the name Nora Roberts, and right. then she's written 50-something books under J.D. Robb, and I'm just like, how? Right, that is amazing. I'm super impressed,
2: super jealous, and also just kind of stupefied. Like, that is, that the output
0: required for that is uh, incredible. I think that she might actually still write her books, unlike, mm-hmm. you know, James Patterson that... Right. I don't know how his thing works but <laughs> uh I don't really know either I I know there was
2: some kerfuffle about his publishing imprint in the last couple months but uh, I don't I don't know what his status is with ghostwriters exactly
0: what originally inspired you to write the lady upstairs so I was it was kind of a confluence of a couple of different
2: things. I had this really strong female voice in my head. There's a there's a scene in the book in which my main character, Joe is kind of looking back at how she got started with the black male agency and her first meeting with Lou, who is her best friend at the agency and is really the one who kind of set her on this path. That um, first scene was actually a short story that I tried to write and rewrite and work over and over and over again. And I, I knew I had something with this character's voice, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it yet. The short story wasn't enough of a story and it felt like there was something more there. So I I knew I had this person. And then I decided to move to LA for grad school to get my MFA from Otis College of Art and Design. I think that was one of the things that kind of made it click. Um, You know that I have always had this love for noir films, noir literature. I am the kind of person who Googles murders when I can't fall asleep. So it was this kind of natural fit of like, oh, I think maybe she's actually in a noir. And then when I had that, lens to look at it through, I was like, oh, absolutely. What she actually is, is she's a literal femme fatale. She's not just the femme fatale kind of projection of male anxiety happening around World War II. She's a literally, that's her job, is... She is actually taking down men. And when I kind of had that put together with Joe's voice, that was kind of what got me through the first first couple drafts of it was trying to figure out how to marry those two things.
0: So it was just kind of a, a couple of different things falling into place, I would say. I'm always very interested in how people got to the point of their book, and that's that's one of the most interesting stories that I've heard about. Oh, this is how it came to be. Oh, thank um, you. And the fact that the move really made it click for you. That's that's really cool.
2: What yeah, there was there was something about, you know, I grew up in rural Northern California and then I lived in the Bay area for a few years after I graduated from UC Santa Cruz. And so I didn't, my, I had spent time in Southern California, of course, but I didn't really understand it the same way that I understood San Francisco or Oakland or Humboldt County. Um, And so LA is just this kind of different beast of a city. It was never really city planned. It's kind of like 92 small cities stapled together. And so also kind of making it a noir, LA with its rich history of noir, that was kind of Another lens through which I could also explore this new city I was living in.
0: Oh yeah, and there is so much noir set in the LA area. It's yes, kind of like Noir Central, Murder in the Sunshine. Yes. <laughs> so, if you could describe the lady upstairs in three words, what would they be? Ooh, uh, sexy feminist noir. Oh, I love that. It's, it's <laughs> all my keywords. <laughs> Thank you. And what do you hope readers take away from the book? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I hope that maybe it
2: provokes some thought. I I always talk about it as being a feminist noir, but there's a lot of elements of the book that I would say are actually not particularly feminist. And even my main character Joe, who is working to blackmail bad men in Hollywood, I don't I don't know that I consider that the feminist route, but to me it's a feminist book because it centers the experience of women and they don't have to They don't have to fit a certain mold in order for those stories to be valuable to be told. So I guess maybe maybe I want the reader to come away with their own feeling either way about why it is or is not a feminist book. I don't I don't ever want to subscribe that I want them to take one certain thing. I guess I'm just very curious about what people's
0: experience of the book would be I mean because it's one of those things that as a creator once you let it go into <laughs> the world you you don't know what right. somebody will come away with or how it will impact them and I'm sure that that will be fascinating to see especially in your reviews and stuff what people <laughs> liked and what they connected to exactly
2: it's kind of like you're saying fly little baby bird and then once it's out there it's you know it's still my book but it also is the reader's book and so whatever their experience of it is is not you know I don't think I could ever or say that that was wrong or not true because that's their experience of it as for reviews i am aggressively staying off goodreads basically until the end of my life i don't want to <laughs> i am i am not a person who could read the reviews and really just take that well whereas as we talked about earlier lane fargo she gets a lot of joy out of reading all of the reviews good and bad i don't i don't know if i have that in me
0: <laughs> yeah i always wonder about that i like to think that i would be able to take it well and just be like uh-huh. oh they said some horrible things but whatever i don't care but i don't I don't know that I would be able to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I think I would be too much like my baby. So did you have any books or TV shows or movies that inspired this book or kind of fits into the aesthetic of it?
2: Oh, man, absolutely. So one of my favorite books of all time, and the book that I kind of reread very frequently, but particularly for this project is like a touchstone book, is a book called Queen Pin by Megan Abbott. Um, and it's one of her earlier novels. And it's about this kind of nameless narrator who gets drawn into an organized crime organization by this kind of seductive older woman. And it's kind of a 40s, 50s throwback, so it has a lot of um, period details, but she just has this great balance of character exploration and a really tight plot and this just like gorgeous, chewy language that like, I just... That book is always a shot of creativity in the arm for me. Another one that I read and reread very frequently and that I think is a fabulous... Feminist Noir is Miami Purity by Vicki Hendricks. That book was published in the 1990s. And it's like, if you ask crime writers, there are a lot of crime writers. It's one of their favorite books, but I don't think it's as widely read now as it should be. And it's uh, basically takes the plot of double indemnity and flips the focus to be on a woman who's pursuing a man who's bad news. And it is just really, really well done. Just beautiful and dark and sexy and like, just kind of like, fireworks in your veins reading it. It's I can't recommend it enough. It is just a great book. I also really loved the book Sunburn by Laura Lippmann when I was reading this, which again is kind of a, a different take on, you know, double indemnity, the postman always rings twice. And I, I loved that book so much And some of Laura's language in there that I would stop some of I was reading it when I was in grad school and I would like stop some of my classmates in the halls and be like, listen to this sentence. And they were like, we get it, Hallie. You're really into it. We get it. And so very fond feelings of that one. Sometimes I think my life on the internet is just me looking for a way to talk about my love for the film Body Heat, but uh got to throw that one in there as as you know we've talked about Body Heat prior <laughs> on a on a previous episode. <laughs> Um, but I watched that movie probably, I don't know, 40, 50 times while I was writing this book. Just something about the rhythm of it, the characters, something really just kind of felt like it was helping me hammer out the noir stuff. And then um, as far as classic noir goes, I watched the film Gilda a lot. That one was really another kind of centering book about the experience of the femme fatale. I think because Gilda is such an interesting, complex character in that movie, and I'm not convinced the movie does her right, but it, it is, I love that film.
0: I haven't seen that one, but it is on. My list to watch this month, and oh, it's a classic. I also have some things added to my to-be-read list now. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, of course. Who are some of your literary heroes?
2: Megan Abbott is really up there. I mean, she just, everything she writes, like, uh, the premise to me for a Megan Abbott book is, she always has great premises, but it's almost irrelevant. I would read whatever she wrote. She's one of my literary heroes. Lane Fargo is one of my literary heroes. She is so generous with her time and her energy with other writers. It really is remarkable. I would say Elmer Leonard is a writer who I return to over and over again. You know, just his sense of style and his, just has this great rhythm to his words that is just amazing. Laura Littman's another one. I know I've already mentioned a bunch of these people, but they're, honestly, I could go on and on all day at this point <laughs> with some of them. So I'll put a pin in it there, but I will reserve the right to maybe circle back to that question as more people filter into my mind.
0: Sounds good. I like that. I have a, a- to be read list that I will never finish in this Um, lifetime and I just keep adding to it so uh, it is a barren wasteland at this point (laughs) yeah Uh, I used to work at a bookstore and one of my co-workers said it really depressed him to think about that he'd never get to read everything and I don't know it doesn't depress me it Mm -hmm. just makes me a little bit more selective now yes but but I still like adding more things onto my list. Right, me too.
2: Perhaps this is the answer to the question about whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist, but I remain somehow, despite the odds, optimistic that I will read all the books. And I know that there's no way because every, you know, every week there's more books come out that I would love to read. But like, there is a part of me that's like, oh, one day I'll do it. One day I'll figure out time management to such a T that I'll just read like 15 books a week and I will just cruise through everything I've ever wanted to read.
0: Yes. (laughs) I also started listening to audiobooks when I drive so that that way I can be reading I mean, a lot of times I'm physically reading more than one book at a time, but that way I can have one in the car, and one at work and one at home and, you know. Perfect. Just consuming more. That's,
2: yes. Just consume, consume, consume.
0: Let's see. Megan Abbott. I read, I've only read one of hers and I think it was You Will Know Me. Is that the oh. one about the scientists? Yes. Okay. Yes, I love that book. It was, that was such an interesting one because it's kind of thriller mystery, but mm-hmm. not really. But what is it? I don't know. Right. And then you just want to know what's going to happen. Right. I think that's a pretty good
2: description of all of her books. I mean, I think that... You know, most of her books involve, I think all of them involve crime or mystery in some way, but they're also really about like female relationships and ambition and just kind of particularly that book. It just is so kind of front and center in a way that you don't see in a lot of novels. And I just, uh, I loved it.
0: Yeah. And nobody in it was like, I can't say that I really related to anybody in Mm -hmm. it or really liked anybody in it, but that didn't stop me from enjoying the book.
2: Right. No, I totally totally agree. They're just they felt very real, whether or not you saw yourself in any part of them. And actually, I do believe that book was based on a real life, crime there was a woman in a young woman in texas who was sent to live with her father when her mom um i think took up with a new boyfriend and she ended up poisoning him and told like a high school friend about it who eventually went to the police
0: jeez i know i mean yeah what do you do with that i can't imagine being in high school and having somebody tell you they killed their dad
2: yeah seriously i mean that is that's a big moral weight to put on someone's shoulders that knowledge and you know being a 17 year old girl that would be a i i wouldn't know how how to to handle it
0: yeah nothing in my life is working right now my body is going (laughs) weird and now i know this thing (laughs) Uh, now i know
2: this thing that would require an enormous amount of like wisdom to navigate as an adult that i just do not have yet
0: oh goodness yeah wow that takes it to a whole new level knowing (laughs) that it has some truth behind it yeah yeah there you go are there any questions, because I know you haven't quite started your full press tour and everything yet, but is there anything about the book that you'd love for people to ask you about, or you're always like, I wonder why people don't ask me this thing? That is such
2: a good question. You know, as you said, I'm, I'm kind of at the beginning of, of this journey, so uh, every question feels new and exciting. You know, I, I don't know. I, uh, I haven't had a lot of people ask me yet about the cover and all I want to do is talk about how beautiful of a cover, uh, Putnam put together for me because I really am thrilled. I have heard, I have heard stories from other friends who have published books that sometimes the cover that you get from your cover designer, they always want you to be happy, but often they have a different vision from it than you do. And really my, uh, cover designer erica verbeck really knocked this one out of the park because it just is spectacular it has this kind of like pink and purple almost electric 80s or 90s feel to it that i really love but it still
0: feels modern at the same time i just i'm so thrilled it is it's really beautiful and thank you wait for it to be on my shelf um (laughs) do you get input into the cover or do they just say here it is hope you like it
2: Um, It's a little bit of both. Uh, So they definitely asked me Putnam, which I have had a great experience with Putnam, uh, with my editor, Danielle Dietrich, has just been the best. My publicist, Delora, has been wonderful. Everybody that I've worked with at Putnam has been fantastic. So my editor asked me to kind of put together some examples of things I really liked in covers that I felt like might be comparable for my book, and then things that I didn't like, which was nice, too, to be able to do that. You know, Luckily, when they sent me the mock-up for the cover, I really loved it, and I didn't really have very many notes. We ended up doing something slightly different with the font on on the front, but I, I was so pleased with it that it wasn't like... Uh, I never had to find out what would have happened if I had said, I really don't like this, and kicked it back to them. Yeah, my experience... It has been phenomenal I know that in other people's experience that if they've been really unhappy with the cover they'll kind of they'll rework it in different ways but um you know cover designers are cover designers they're experts they they know what they're doing and sometimes what they know will pop on a shelf is a little different than what an author had envisioned
0: yeah one of those things that they're hired to do a job for a reason but right but also yeah this is your baby and you know like, you want the packaging on it to be how you feel represents the book
2: right right yeah it's i mean it is the visual representation of your novel out in the world you know it's never don't judge a book by its cover as a saying but we all do it you know it's part of the reason we pick up books so it's hard not to not to have that be a really important part of the book
0: experience Yeah, and I actually have found some really amazing books just because I thought the cover was cool. Right? Same here. (laughs) It's worked the other way sometimes too, but um, like I said before, I worked in a bookstore for a while and it was funny to see trends in book covers yes like I made a display one time that was all white people staring at each other uh, <laughs> there's a lot of like Nicholas Spark type books and oh, things in that vein and all of the covers were almost exactly the same right even with like the man and the woman being on the same side right on right. each book and then um, in like historical fiction for the last few years it's been Groups of women walking away. So you see them from the back, and it's usually two or three. And I was able to find, I think, four books that had almost the exact same cover, color scheme. Um, it's like okay well if you like this one then you'll probably like all of these
2: (laughs) definitely which you know okay so I just said that thing about cover designers know what they're doing and I do believe in that but there does seem to be this weird almost um, common denominator you know a trend shows up and all of a sudden there's 15 books that look exactly like it as if to say to a reader do you like this book come buy these other books you know what I mean like readers readers are we read the back of stuff it's not the cover is important but it's not the only thing so it is always a little funny to me when you start to see things that are almost like exact imprints of each other as
0: if to say we just want to make sure you don't miss this yeah <laughs> in case you weren't sure this is like this right
2: <laughs> yeah it,
0: it is funny but but then too it's the same type of thing as like after gone girl came out every thriller had the word girl in the title yes 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 personal bugaboo of mine yes that is there's we could we could have a whole
2: uh a whole podcast episode just devoted to all the girl books and why that is a pretty strange trend to come out I don't know I personally find it very infantilizing the girl in there
0: yes it's funny you bring that up because it's something I've been thinking about in my own life recently is referring to women as women and not Uh girls because we're not at this age like girls are children and women are women right we don't usually refer to grown men as boys no but maybe we should start (laughs) yeah because most of them do act like it agreed (laughs) um (laughs) and on that note let's let's (laughs) let's talk about some noir because i know that you are a fan of the uh noir film festival as am i yes Yes, I think you got you said you got to see a couple before the Hollywood one was canceled due to COVID this year. I did. I did get to
2: see two of the Argentinian noir films from the noir film fest last year. Uh, which it's crazy that that was last year or whenever, whenever that was. I've lost a little bit of control of time, to be honest with you. But it was, it was a wonderful experience. I loved both of the, both of the films. Eddie Muller was there, which is always so
0: cool to see him. But it is, it is a bummer that we won't be getting to do it this year. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but they are doing an online version <sighs> of it. Oh, they are. That's wonderful. Yeah, it starts on the 13th and runs to the 29th. They've Perfect. got, I think, 17 films that they're showing it's a little different than what in-person festival was going to be because Mm -hmm. i don't know if like all of those films are digitally available or what but um right you can buy a pass to see all of them or you can you know watch individual ones and he'll be doing introductions and stuff it's going to be as close to the in-person festival as they can make it um oh my gosh that's so exciting it's hosted through afi silver
2: okay wonderful well i'm obviously yes i'll be on this yes
0: yeah i'm super excited because i got to go to a few days of the san francisco festival which was amazing and i'll love going to san francisco uh, mm-hmm. but i didn't get to see everything so i'm gonna get to catch up a, a few of the titles that i missed yeah definitely i'll be doing the
2: same yes the as I'm, i pulled up the the uh schedule right now the Black Vampire, I did get to see El Vampiro Negro um, in person last year, and that was wonderful. So highly recommend that if you get the chance.
0: Yes, that is one I'm very excited to get to see because um, I, I got in the day de- the second day. So I missed those opening films. And I was like yes, ah.
2: yes. Um, I don't know if I told you the story of the very first film noir fest that I went to. I don't know. Okay. So the very first one that I went to was the uh, 20th anniversary of LA Confidential. And I went on opening night and I got to hear James Elroy speak. And they had, which was wonderful. I mean, he's a legend. So that was amazing. Um, and he just trashed the movie, which I found hilarious he was like it's not good it's fine it's whatever it is but it's not my book well what can you do (laughs) they gave me money and you're just like okay that was uh, he was honest but what was funny was that he did bring up a few points about the film and I love that film I very much enjoy it I rewatch it pretty frequently for whatever reason because the movie starts around Christmas time it's always like a Christmas movie to me and so I'll rewatch LA Confidential I watched it afterwards with his words in my ears and was like you're right, you know it is it is a very different uh it, it's not as good as his book but it's still a great movie but anyway, this is a this is this is just a goofy little story but in in the middle between um two of the films they brought down this wonderful burlesque dancer who was doing entertaining the man who was seated in front of me, pulled out his iPhone and started to record, which I found a little tacky but uh, was much preferable to when he put the iPhone down, pulled out a camcorder from his bag and zoomed in and started recording the dancer with a camcorder. I have never seen that before. (laughs) And uh, and I just, uh, I'll always think of that man whenever I think of the
0: Noir City Festival. That seems so odd that if you have your iPhone there that you would also bring your camcorder? I don't know. I have so many questions about that. I'm like, was he bootlegging the film festival? What was happening? (laughs) Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like, why would you bring that to a film festival? I mean, I've taken some videos there. There's a really amazing um, organist that plays at the San Francisco festival. And so I've Uh recorded some of that, but that's a little bit different. I wasn't going there with a camcorder. How odd. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's just very interesting. Yeah. People people always surprise me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh endlessly surprising, sometimes in not wonderful ways. Yeah. What made you fall in love with the noir genre? That's a really good question.
2: And, um, you know, I think that there is something about noir, both film and literature, that really feels like, people living at their most human often in really dark ways ways that are like I don't want to live in that world but it it does make it fun to visit that world to see that amount of heightened emotion whether it's about murder or crime or desperation or desire or sex or love like they're just as kind of people living at full full speed even in a very dark way but I think that that's for me, what makes that really fun to dip in and out of. Like I said, I feel lucky that that is not what my life is like on a day-to-day basis, but uh, it does make it fun to visit for me. What about for you? Why? What, what resonates for you with the genre?
0: I think some of what you were saying there, too, because, yes, obviously I am not involved in like bank heists or gangster <laughs> stuff. I, that I we am... can talk about on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about the <laughs> farthest thing from a femme fatale that you can get, but it's <laughs> oh, it's fun to like look at that and to kinda be like, Ooh, what would I do if I was in that situation? Or, you know, right. kind of walk on the dark side for a little bit. And right. I love mysteries, so especially if there's that like who done it or mm-hmm. oh, how are you gonna get out of this right this situation? And I think it also speaks a lot to my personality that noirs are usually very bleak. Mm -hmm. They don't end happily a lot of times. Now, don't get me wrong. I I love, you know, comedies and romantic comedies and having fun and all that Mm -hmm. stuff, too. But, you know, there's just something about really being like, okay, this I I know, I know we're going for a ride, and it's not Mm -hmm. gonna be a good one.
2: No, I and I yeah, I totally know exactly what you mean. I almost I feel like in in person, I have gotten this note before from people who have read my book that I am nicer in person than they would expect. And I I almost (laughs) wonder if it's like being able to indulge in some of that darker side if that that helps balance you in this weird way. You know what I mean? Like it, um, it's a it's a very safe outlet to kind of put on that sort of skin in a way that you would never do in real life, but you get to kind of experience it secondhand.
0: Yeah, and it's, you know, kind of playing make-believe. Yeah,
2: exactly, which none of us have really grown out of, really.
0: No, and that that's good. Um, yes. Because if we stop using our imaginations, I feel like we would get to be very, very dull people. <laughs> yes, yes. I agree. Do you have a favorite femme fatale? Ooh, good one.
2: (laughs) I mean, this is, uh, these are already examples that I mentioned before. I would say Maddie Walker from Body Heat is, uh, you know, she's the reason I'm fascinated with that film. I think it's because I wouldn't say that I feel that film is feminist. It doesn't really center her. She is still, you know, William Hurt's character. Ned Racine is still the main character, but she's the first time it feels like the femme fatale is, or at least for me, this, you know, she's smarter than everyone else around her. It's actually not her sex appeal that is the most dangerous thing about her. It's her brain. And I love that because she's using her sex appeal as this kind of smoke screen. She's really what she's doing is maneuvering the pieces in this very like cold, logical calculating way. So she always fascinates me. Gilda, the film, which I won't ruin for you if you haven't seen it, but she's a really interesting case because the The film does some interesting things with her character that feel not she's a very complicated character and she the Mm -hmm. film kind of at times tries to make her I think less complicated and the ending I think does a really, really strange thing like I don't think the ending of Gilda is the right ending for the film. But I think it's the ending that they had to use at that time period to deal with the Hayes Code and to deal with a couple of different things. And so to me, she's kind of this endlessly fascinating character because she's this open question of who really is Gilda, which I think is like a question that is central to a lot of noir. You know, who is the femme fatale? Is she actually as dangerous as the male protagonist finds her? But for Gilda, it's literally the movie does something very strange to her that leaves you with this feeling of not quite knowing who she is, which is very interesting. Daphne from uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, both the film and the book. One of my favorite femme fatales, too, because I think Walter Mosley does such a great job of building in this kind of critique of racism and this, you know, Different experience. So much of classic noir is very white. I mean, that's not true across the board. There's Chester Himes. There's a bunch of writers of color writing noir. But um, Walter Mosley did something really unique with with that character, and I I, have, I always always appreciate that.
0: Yes. So uh, I didn't want to interrupt you, but now oh. I will comment on those things. Okay. I have heard that Devil in a Blue Dress is really good, and that is on my to-watch list, so... It's fabulous. Very excited to hear that from somebody that I do trust that it is good. (laughs) I think I might watch Gilda tonight, so thank you for bumping that up on my list.
2: (laughs) I would love to hear what you think about it afterwards, because I have, like, very strong feelings about that film.
0: (laughs) Was it based on a book, or was it just a
2: movie? I believe it was just a movie. I think it's basically was them kind of wanting to get together uh Rita Hayworth and Glenn Ford again that they I, I might be remembering this wrong it might be the opposite that their chemistry and Gilda was so strong that they put them in other things but I I seem to remember that maybe it, part of the uh reasoning for it was to get them back together on screen so it's wow. um it is it's it's an interesting one it's an interesting one <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's been on my list for a long time, but for some reason, I just haven't gotten around to it, and I'm I'm going to have to do that really soon.
2: Yes, and then we'll have to have a whole separate powwow just about
0: that film. <laughs> yes, I am down for that. <laughs> Excellent. Do you have anything, any noirs coming up on your watch list for this month? Oh, well, now I have all of Noir
2: City. I'm okay. basically just going to be buying a pass and seeing all of those. Those are great. Um, You know, the turnip... Classic movies used to do the noir alley. They might still be doing them where uh, on Sundays they air Saturday nights. Usually um, I miss it, although I have no excuse now. Where am I going Saturday nights? But uh, they'll often do the noir things. And so that's been something I really uh, enjoy is watching those in bed
0: Sunday morning with my coffee. That's that's a really good day for me yeah i enjoy their marketing for that because they say okay you can watch it saturday night with a drink or sunday morning with your coffee ah, that's great <laughs> i always seem to miss them somehow um, so too. i try i try to record them on my dvr and i've got i've got a few that i'm catching up on as part of my noir november list so that's been Love fun. It. What's on your Noir November list? I've got quite a few. Let's see, just a sec. I was grabbing my stack. Um, I love it. So let's see. I've got Crime of Passion. Ooh. Which is a Barbara Stanwyck, Sterling Hayden movie. I don't Ooh. know anything about it. It was a blind buy, so I'm excited. Love that. I've got a Noir Archive Nine Film Collection that has a bunch that i've never seen on it address unknown escape the fog assignment paris the black book so that's gonna be fun that is super fun and oh the blue dahlia i saw that at uh, noir city a few years ago but my sister's never seen it so i think Mm. i'm gonna make her watch it with me
2: I actually I saw that at the same Noir City uh, festival I believe uh, I saw that too that was that was wonderful
0: nice yeah that one I'd never seen it before and I thought it was really good I walked out of the theater going oh whoa. <laughs> Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, written by Raymond Chandler, right? Yes. Yes, you are right about that. The classic.
2: And I mean, I love, too, you know, that the Black Dahlia, which has such an interesting place in L.A. history and even in like L.A. noir, takes her name from that film, which I think a lot of people who are not noir and or murder freaks don't realize.
0: I feel like I knew that, but I had forgotten.
2: Yes. Oh, it's easy. I mean, in some ways, I think she's overtaken the film in terms of like, like, I think more people know who the Black Dahlia is if you say Black Dahlia versus Blue Dahlia, but
0: yeah. It's really interesting with Noir because the stories are all different, but sometimes there's enough similarities mm-hmm. that I get things mixed up. Right. Um, I'm like, okay, which one about the Crooked Cop is this? <laughs> right, exactly. And there's a femme fatale in there somewhere. <laughs> Honestly, I remember them better than usually the guys in it because... Well, they have the better lines. Yeah, and, and I'm it. more interested in them because they're more interesting characters usually, but... um, I agree. Kind of here for the end, we'll do something a little bit fun. Um, We have some 20 questions that we do, and we won't do all 20 of them. Okay, um, awesome. So, you just pulled off your big bank heist. Where are uh-huh. you going to retire with the money? Oh man,
2: somewhere tropical. I feel like I probably shouldn't say on the podcast, so <laughs> the federales don't get me, but uh, I probably... Actually, so I would say somewhere tropical, like Hawaii or other tropical lands I haven't explored yet. But I also would honestly probably use it to travel around and see the world. I don't think I would stay in one place.
0: Nice. Do you have a favorite curse word?
2: Uh, uh, I am partial to fuck. I think it's a classic. I like the F to the hard sound. It's my favorite.
0: (laughs) useful in so many situations. In so many situations. I feel like this may be a fairly obvious question, but fiction or nonfiction? Fiction, although I do love me some nonfiction. I would say I read probably
2: 65% fiction, but I do read a significant amount of nonfiction every year.
0: Oh wow. Is there a particular category that you or are you just all over the place with it?
2: Kind of all over the place, you know um if I had to pick one I would say probably the biggest bucket goes to fact crime. Um, hmm. but I, I, I am all over the place. If something catches my eye, I'll read it. So you do read a lot of like true crime books or? I do. I actually just read one, um, People Who Eat Darkness, which is about young British woman who, uh, around 2000, 2001 goes to live in Japan and work as a hostess at a bar. Um, and she goes missing and it becomes this very big international event
0: and they finally, hunt down the man responsible but it's it's a great book oh wow who as much as I love murder stuff sometimes the true crime murder gets to me a little bit because it's like oh this this actually happened to people definitely
2: definitely and I I think that you know the best true crime books I think take a heavy dose of that into account like um this book definitely does you know there's a huge amount of it more focused on the victim and the victim's family and the impact of her loss uh which is which is important to see but also does make for some heavy reading because yeah it is it's not just a fake body in a in a movie it's real you know there's a very human cost behind it
0: yeah so that is something that is a i feel like can be difficult sometimes Um, but I do really like the true crime books where Mm -hmm. it's more of kind of like I guess swindling people because okay that that is bad but usually you don't die from that and it's just kind of interesting how people can get away with that stuff.
2: Yes. Have you ever listened to the podcast Scam Goddess? No, but that sounds great. (laughs) It is a fabulous podcast hosted by um, a comedian. Her name is Lacey. Let me make sure I get this right. Lacey Mosley. And every week she goes into her favorite scam. So she'll bring on often it's other stand up comedians and they'll talk about a scam that they either were part of or that happened to them. Um, And she'll also go into historical scams. Like I think one of the early ones of course is Anna Delvey, which we were all fascinated by for a hot minute. And honestly I still am, but, uh, you know, just kind of goes into different, different scams people have worked, which I do agree. There is something more easily enjoyable about those things, even though some of those are heartbreaking too, you know, when, when people get conned out of money and like some of it can be really sad too, but it, it but it, it's, it's easier to, uh, enjoy, I think, than, than murder in some ways and in many ways.
0: Is, is that you were talking about, Anna, is that the book My Friend Anna was based on? I believe so,
2: yes. And there was that uh, fabulous article that came out in The Cut, I believe it was, about Anna Delvey kind of doing a rundown of all the different people she scammed.
0: And it just is a mind mind blower. How, I don't know, people, I don't know. So fascinating. It, it is interesting. I guess maybe we want to believe what people we don't want to think that people are trying to scam us or something so we don't yeah consider that
2: <laughs> yeah i i agree with you i mean i think that they're like and i i think that that's actually maybe that's a good thing about humankind yeah to some, some extent you know this ability to be trusting or, or to not want to believe that people are really as bad as they are and on the other hand sometimes there are stories about stuff that come out that you're just like wow so you really you let this one go for a while huh <laughs> you know like anna delvey's borrowing thousands of dollars from people all over new york and surfing on couches and i i don't know i i no no shade to any of those people i'm sure i could be taken advantage of i just is uh it's all it's just fascinating kind of as, from a psychological standpoint bad blood i don't know have you read that one yes the theranos book yes what a trip that one is. Oh my goodness. Okay, I practice my Elizabeth Holmes voice with some regularity because that also is part of it, right? Like that she was putting on such an act that she would change her voice. I mean, that is just a fascinating story.
0: Yeah. And yeah, that's another one that it was very interesting to read about, but also when I started to think about like the actual implications of that, because yeah. they're giving people bad medical oh, advice. Oh, it's crazy.
2: It's insane. And from such a strange thing, I mean, I felt like one of my takeaways from that book was that she was this weird optimist in this way of like I believe we can do it so I'll just say we can until we can but but it's people's medical records you can't do that
0: (laughs) yeah you can't tell them oh they are fine or oh they're not if you don't really have any idea if they are yeah that was that just kind of blew my mind listening to that yeah and then how it just kept going on and how they were able to like keep ducking these inspections and stuff and right ducking inspections yeah and it, it also I think that there's something
2: interesting to say and I'm sure somebody smarter than me has said it but about you know America's relationship to the way that we want certain things to be true you know I think people really wanted her to be the story she dropped out of Harvard or Stanford or whatever and was this young woman like how amazing would it be if she really was all these things we wanted her to be but there was no there there you know there was nothing actually behind it it was just this great facade that you know that it
0: wasn't even didn't even seem super well covered up really underneath it you know yeah it was just like don't tell anything I mean people had signed non-disclosures and all that Mm -hmm. but it was just kind of like don't tell anybody or we'll break your legs type of thing (laughs) right and Which, I'm sorry, I'm going to need some hard data before I invest a couple million dollars in this. There's another one that I really wanted to read that sounded interesting. It's a, a couple years old now, but it's called The Feather Thief. Ooh, I don't know anything about this. Um, It's a super bizarre sounding story because it was this guy who was a flute player who broke into one of the big museums in London and huh. stole these rare bird feathers <laughs> to make fishing lures. What? Yeah, uh, apparently there was like these, this pattern for these old fishing lures and people wanted these feathers, but the bird was extinct. Yeah, and he broke in and stole the few feathers that this museum had. To go fishing. (laughs) Yeah, and it took years and I don't know if he actually even did anything with them or not, but it sounds, it just sounds so bizarre. I'm like, okay, I have to, I have to know more about this story.
2: (laughs) Yeah, same here. Oh my goodness fascinating but yeah yeah, i I tend
0: to like a little bit more like that because okay it's really bad he stole these feathers but ultimately yeah probably didn't i i don't know if he killed anybody but i don't think he did right right the and like that is so
2: fascinating too because it's
0: you know there's something about
2: that that i'm really interested in where it's it wasn't that he was reselling them it was uh, something totally different you know it's that's that's fascinating human beings are we're
0: weirdos (laughs) yeah (laughs) Amazing. Okay, so as a mystery writer, what is your weapon of choice? Ooh.
2: hmm. Good question. I feel like forensics are one of the parts that I struggle with most as a writer because I want things to happen in an artistic way and not necessarily the way that they did happen. I'm gonna go with poison. I feel like poison is my weapon of choice, which is I don't know that that's the most original answer, but that's my weapon.
0: Nice. I like it. I feel like poison isn't used very much in most modern books because I guess it's too easy to detect or I don't know. It's usually all like stabbing or gunshots. But, But yeah, I like a good poison.
2: I would be I would be the worst murderer like I would get caught so fast so (laughs) doesn't shock me that I pick one of the ones that's like oh yeah that would be easy to detect but yeah
0: (laughs) there's something I don't know there's something symbolic about it or so I don't know I I guess to play into stereotypes poison was always the women's uh, murder weapon very true because we weren't strong enough to wield the other ones right Poisons are good. Also, yes, Um, I forget sometimes, like, when I was writing a paragraph the other day, I was thinking about, okay, they have to go get the police. And it's like, but why didn't she use her cell phone? Oh, right. because I still don't think about, especially in murder books, like, oh, people have cell phones.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Cell phones, I think, are the
2: bane of existence for... <laughs> Writers, I think that there are a few authors out there who use them really well, uh, you know, for solving crime novels, but they end, they add endless complications, whether it's why wouldn't you call someone on the cell phone is like the number one solution to most plot holes that people can, can come up with. And then also anytime you bring a cell phone with you, you basically have like a little GPS device on you. So it just, it has made things a lot harder. I like to pretend my books exist in a vacuum in which there are no cell
0: phones. I do enjoy a lot of books that are like that that are kind of like not exactly in a time Mm -hmm. they kind of bridge two times i i do enjoy that a lot well that's good to hear because i am i am lazy and probably will continue doing that (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i don't know if you're a horror person at all but have you watched the haunting of bly manor I did watch Okay, I have one episode
2: left I did watch it I loved it I thought it was such a beautiful romantic story even among among the ghost stories I was a fan
0: I'm not very far into it but yes I'm really enjoying it but I feel like that kind of is because it's like okay what time period is right. this it feels kind of modern because they're speaking in a more modern mm-hmm. way but yet some of the clothes and right. some of the things the way that they've kind of layered that like
2: 1980s over the term of the screw. Yeah, it does kind of give it this like timeless feel where it could be both like 1980s, but it could also feel 1940s. It's really, it's interesting.
0: Yeah, so I I think it's really fun when creators can do that. Mm -hmm, I agree. So this question may be a little bit harder because I'm sure at the moment you probably are working in two professions, um, but other than writing and whatever else it is that you do, what is something that you would like to attempt. Ooh, as as a profession or as a hobby? Either way, it ha- I have profession here. But if if there's something that you'd like to do as a hobby, too, I feel like that's good. I would love to go
2: swimming with whale sharks. I would love to spend more time in the ocean. I think that's something that is going to come out of uh, COVID for me is kind of wanting to try more uh, experiences like that. You know, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be an archaeologist, specifically an Egyptologist. I was very obsessed with the movie The Mummy. And I've actually gone on two archaeological digs in my life and found oh, wow. them wildly fun. So maybe, maybe there's a part of me that's still holding on to that dream.
0: <laughs> did you think about majoring in archaeology or was it just did you know you were going to be a writer?
2: No, I did definitely think about majoring in archaeology. Um, I job shadowed an archaeologist when I was in high school. um, And they basically were like, it's great. There's no money and no jobs, but you should definitely do it. And I was like, oh, okay." Uh, And then the summer before my senior year of high school, so I was just 17, I went on an archaeological dig in Hawaii. And while I really loved it, I think I came out of that going like, you know, I think the thing I I really enjoyed doing that, but I think I enjoyed it as like a... uh, break away from my life, whereas reading in books and writing was like feeling like being very in my life, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So one day you'll be Agatha Christie where you'll write your books and then you'll go out and then do archaeology stuff in oh yeah. That.
2: I basically my long con from here on out is to set a book in a different country. Uh every every book in a different country. That way I can just be like, oh I guess I have to travel that country for like three months. What a rough life. It's for the book really.
0: That is an excellent idea. I like the way you think. It's all along, con, Laura. So what's a profession that you would not like to do? Ooh, I have no interest in being a politician.
2: Uh, I think we need good leaders. And I think I—I I think that's never an area I've been called to. Um, I come from a family of teachers and uh, my day job, I work in education and higher education writing um, and I love it. And I think education is the way we change the world. But I think I also have a pretty good sense of my strengths and how hard it is to be a teacher, and I think I know that that profession is probably not for me, but I think it is a fabulous profession that does not get enough... First of all, it doesn't get paid enough, and it doesn't get enough respect, but uh, both of those things. But I I also kind of know that probably I'm not... (laughs) I'm not, I'm not cut from the cloth that could, that could be a great teacher.
0: Yeah. It's one of those things that I know a lot of really good teachers Mm -hmm. and they're amazing people. I taught after school program, which was Mm -hmm. like three hours with the kids. And I realized really fast that being an in-classroom teacher was not for me. It's really hard, right? I mean, it's really hard. Yeah. Not only is it just, oh, okay. I'm, actually in charge of all of these children for so long but you have the school board and the principal and the right. parents and right. so it's so much more than the just the teaching right. which is and difficult that enough that you-
2: Mm-hmm, right. Difficult enough. And then all of these extra things that you, you know, have to take on in order to really participate, but
0: is not necessarily part of your compensated time. And yeah, it's a lot. Great respect for all teachers, but I totally yes. understand where you're coming from with yeah. that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I have too much respect to imagine that I would be good at this.
0: <laughs> okay. If you were going to have dinner with three evil women, either real or fictional, it doesn't matter, who would you pick? Ooh, evil women, huh? Um, so or what society considers evil right, right? I'm gonna throw Cleopatra in there. I don't think Ooh, nice.
2: I consider her evil, but I would say she has an interesting historical reputation. It's hard because to me, the lines are so blurred about like, you know, people that I would consider heroes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, who other people might have different ideas. Not the same, but um, let's throw... I don't think anyone considers... Well, okay. I don't consider her evil. I think you would have to work really hard to consider her evil, but I think that there are people who consider her a nasty woman. Elizabeth Mm. Warren gets a seat at the table. Nice. Um, And then, let's see. (laughs) The next person who comes to mind, and I don't... Again, not somebody I consider evil at all, uh, but I would say she definitely breaks a lot of molds in some ways, would be Rihanna. And I don't even know why I think that, except that I just feel like she would be a fascinating person to have dinner
0: with. I feel like that that would be a very interesting dinner conversation (laughs) with Cleopatra, (laughs) Elizabeth Warren, and Rihanna. Three very strong women, three leaders in their fields. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is, uh, uh, where did that come from for me? But there we go. That's, that's my answer. (laughs) nice i i I would be very interested to to be at that dinner party (laughs) yeah do you have a favorite female author megan abbott okay definitely yeah Yeah. i definitely need to read more of her books i've heard so many good things about them and i know i know one of them was adapted into a tv show the Mm -hmm. i think the one about the cheerleader yes yes
2: fabulous tv
0: show as well have to watch that soon yeah Yeah. Leader Noir is what that is, really. Oh, what mythical creature would you join forces with to take over the world? The Kraken.
2: (laughs) Not even a minute's hesitation. The Kraken, uh, the giant squid and I, we would rule the world. I know giant squid is not the same as the Kraken. But they're, they're cousins. Yeah. One is real, one is mythological.
0: <laughs> you hang out with the Kraken, you probably get to hang out with the giant squids too.
2: Yeah, right? We would have That would also be a dinner party we could have. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, yeah, if you could rule the seas, it would be pretty easy to take over the rest of the world because then people couldn't get to places. Yeah, exactly. Almost worked on Game of Thrones. <laughs> so in a way that can't really kill you, Mm. How did you die? Ooh, buried under an avalanche of my books.
2: I mean, living in California, that's like actually a reality. (laughs) A little bit, you know, if the earthquake comes, but.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like sometimes that that's going to happen. Just all my books and DVDs just (laughs) fall on me. Yep. Okay. And so lastly, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
2: Welcome to the cupcake table.
0: It is constantly refilling. Oh. That's nice. <laughs> that yeah. Do you have a favorite flavor? You know, uh, I I don't really. I am uh equal opportunity cupcake eater. So for you, is there a difference between cake and cupcakes? Uh, no, I'll also, I'll also eat the cake. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I am not picky. <laughs> Hallie will have her cake and eat it too. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
2: That's my version of heaven, I guess.
0: Yeah. Oh man, to just be able to eat stuff and not have to worry about if you're going to gain forty pounds or if right. the sugar was going to make you crash later. Right. Just game on. So, before we wrap up, I just wanted to read some of the wonderful things people have said about your book so far. So, oh. it was one of Pop Sugar's most exciting books of this fall, fall 2020. And Crime Reads also has it on their most anticipated crime books of 2020. 2020- Uh, list. Some of the reviews that you've gotten so far is Hallie Sutton's The Lady Upstairs feels like an instant classic. The noir tale of a woman who delivers her own brand of vigilante justice to the most disgusting men in Los Angeles is full of shocking twists and turns that will leave you gasping and turning the pages. It says, a sizzling debut. Sutton's assured and moody prose often channels the best classic LA noir, but this deliciously tawdry and twisty tale is entirely her own. Oh, I like those words, tawdry and twisty. I love
2: that too. Very, very wonderful.
0: And then another one said that your feminist femme fatale heroine will seduce and intoxicate you, and you'll love every second of it. I'm so excited. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Yes, those are. So many people
2: have been so very generous to this book. It just really takes my breath away.
0: Because I know that a lot of times they send out early copies to get blurbs and stuff to go on mm-hmm. the back. Is that kind of a terrifying process to be like, okay, what what is going to go on the back of my book? What are people going to say? It definitely is. You know, I... Uh, uh, it was a
2: terrifying process a little bit. It was also – I something I enjoyed about it was that essentially I was getting to write fan mail to a bunch of authors I really loved and just, like, tell them, like, and I loved your book so much and here's why, da-da-da-da-da. But it is nerve-wracking because you kind of wonder, like, okay – what if they hate it? Or, you know, just like, there's no guarantee and there shouldn't be, Uh, you know, when you ask somebody to read it, if they'll if they'll like it or not. But I had so many people be really generous that it really was mind blowing. I, you know, a couple of them really made me tear up, which was kind of amazing. But I, I did enjoy the part where
0: I got to write uh love notes to so many authors I, I admire. So you get to do that now, too? Yes. Yes, I do. And do you get to pick who you send the book to? Or is the publisher just like, okay, we're sending it to these other mystery writers. You don't get a say in who it is.
2: No, they definitely you you do get to pick, um, you know, they'll give you suggestions and they'll ask you, you know, and if you have personal relationships with people, that helps too, because it's more likely, you know, like, yeah. Megan Abbott is getting, you know, how many books a month on her desk, like, you're not gonna have time to read all of them. So they definitely ask about that. But it it I don't think I sent letters to anyone that I wasn't personally a fan of.
0: Okay. So, yeah, it's really interesting. There's a, you know, I know a little bit of stuff about the publishing world just from being a book reader and working uh-huh. at a book store but all this other little stuff it's like oh it's so fascinating i just like hearing about it
2: yeah and it is uh fascinating for me as the first time author to be going through it
0: too so do you have any events coming up i know that i've seen a couple of online things that you're doing but if you'd like to tell us about any of those
2: I do have a bunch of events coming up, um, and depending when this airs, the, the events might have already happened, but um, they will be up and available, I believe, uh, on Zoom. My first event takes place November 11th, and I'll be in conversation with Emily Schultz, who's the author of the book that comes out tomorrow called Little Threats, and will be speaking for Murder by the Book in Houston and then uh the week that my book comes out uh November 17th I'll be doing an event with Elizabeth Little for Pages Bookstore in uh Manhattan Beach and then I'll be doing an event for The Poison Pen on November 18th with Amy Gentry and then mm. um yes I'm so excited about that Amy's wonderful and then on the 19th I'll be doing an event with Wendy Hurd for Mysterious Galaxy down in San Diego and then December 3rd I will be doing an event with Lane Fargo
0: for um women and children first bookstore in Chicago oh nice yeah that should be really fun well awesome I will tune into as many of those as I definitely can because oh, I like so a lot of those I mean I'm I like you as an author but I also <laughs> like a lot of those other people too so to have two authors I like together will be fantastic
2: yeah, I'm super excited too. I mean, I'm going to have to try to keep myself from fangirling out over these people
0: and just being like, oh my God, I'm in conversation with, you know, Liz Little. <laughs> oh man. And then once once the world starts getting back, you can go to mystery conventions yes. and stuff. That'll be amazing. That'll be so fun. Maybe we'll get you down here for the Texas Book Festival one year. That oh, would I would great. love that. That would be so fun. Well, thank you so much, Hallie. This was fantastic. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was
2: so wonderful to speak with you, Laura. Thank you for having me
0: back. Oh, yeah. And we will have links in the show notes with about the different books that we talked about in case anybody is curious and like, because I know I always listen to stuff and I'm like, wait, what what was that thing that they said 30 (laughs) minutes ago? Right. Um, So yeah, I'll link to all that stuff and to the events that are coming up. Hope that everything is going well in all the parts of the world that everybody is so yeah
2: yeah definitely well thank you so much i loved getting to speak with you
0: oh yes and thank you and we will definitely have you back again sometime
2: wonderful i look forward to it
1: thank you for listening to this episode of fatal fems like us on facebook at fatal fems and follow us on twitter and instagram fatal underscore fems have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfilmspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.